The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
be humble and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways and you will heal our land. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 113. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenleaf from the National Prayer Chapel. And I'm sorry, we're having technical difficulties. I don't know what the difficulty is. I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, We tried to readjust everything this morning. Uh, I'd like to know from Brother Ed, Is the radio sound coming through clear? Is this just a problem on YouTube? So please let me know where we stand on that. There's a scripture, a verse in Psalm 113 that I want you to hear. It's from the King James Version. And I think it's a much better translation. So let me share it with you. In Psalm 113, it's verse 6. who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in the heaven and in the earth. I want you to grab a hold of this with your heart. The NIV says, who stoops down and it can mean to stoop down. But the, the Hebrew word is to abase, to humble. God actually has to humble himself to look upon the heavens and to look upon our earth. The God we serve is so high And so lifted up. He is so full of glory. So filled with holiness. That he has to humble himself. To even look upon us. For we are indeed a prison planet. We are indeed a place of confinement. The children of Israel finally were granted entrance, standing by faith into the promised land. And as they go into this promised land, they come to Jericho, Now, Jericho is an impossible city for anyone to take. 
The walls are more than 40 feet high, and at the very top, they slant outward. The walls are so thick that houses were built into the walls. They could drive chariot teams on top of the walls. This city was impregnable. And yet God told them exactly what he wanted them to do. And they did that. They marched around this city for seven days. And finally, seven times, blew their trumpets, and God knocked the walls down. Now, they were given very specific instruction regarding the destruction of Jericho. They were not to touch any of the gold or silver or garments. Everything of value was to be put into the Lord's treasury. This was the Lord's. In chapter 7, we find that they're in trouble. And there's a truth here that we have to get a hold of. There's a truth here that is still true today. The Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan took some of the some of the forbidden things. So when Joshua sent men to spy out Ai, a small town close by, they came back with the recommendation that you send two or 3,000 men to take it. Now, there were probably 12,000 fighters in that, in that town. The only way they could have taken it with this small number of men was the hand of God. But the hand of God was against them. So as they come against Ai, they come with sin in their hearts. Now, let me be very clear with you. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by his grace, by his mercy, by his grace and by his mercy, we are not condemned to die. He made a way for us. He created a door of hope for us today, that door of hope, is revival. So these men went up against Ai, and they were routed by the men of Ai and chased, and 36 of them died. 36 men of Israel died. These were fathers. These were sons. These were precious ones to the Lord God of heaven. And the people were utterly devastated. They did not expect a defeat. They were told there would be victory after victory. So now, how do they handle their defeat? And their grave concern is that this word will get around that this very small town was able to withstand the children of Israel and all of the fear in the nations that had been created by the crossing of the Red Sea and then the crossing of the Jordan River on dry ground during flood stage, all of that fear would be dissipated and the Amorites and the others would band together and come and simply destroy them all. So Joshua 
tears his clothes, which in that culture was a symbol of great grief. He tears his clothes. He falls face down, face down to the ground in the dust before the ark of the Lord. And he remained there till evening, crying out to God. He was utterly devastated. He didn't know what to do. This was not what God had said would happen. The elders of Israel joined with Joshua, and it says they sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua began to pray this prayer. Let me read it for you. Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver them into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us, if only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Now you recognize there's a major problem with Joshua's prayer. It's the prayer of an immature man. He does not yet understand the relationship between sin and destruction. he now begins to accuse God in his prayer. God will not be pleased with this prayer. I'll show you that in a moment. Instead of looking at himself, instead of looking at Israel, he begins to look at God and say, why have you treated us this way? What have we done to deserve this mistreatment, God? Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel's been routed by its enemies? Well, who told them to cross the Jordan? Didn't he have a personal meeting with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Didn't he fall down before that man? and remove his shoes because the ground he was standing on was holy? He had gone with a very clear instruction from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and now he's coming back and saying, why didn't we just stay on the other side? Why did we go to Jericho? Because God told you to. The problem is never God's problem. Our God is a merciful God, an upright and righteous God. He is not a God who goes back on his word. The problem is not with God. The problem is with our hearts. If God is not bringing to pass what he has promised you, he then is waiting for you to deal with your heart. Yesterday, I asked the question out of the story of Hannah. What does God want? I've been praying a lot about that. And I received a very clear answer. He wants me to wait on him. He wants me not to get impatient. Not to say, why did you send me to the radio? Why did you call for the National Prayer Chapel? He doesn't want me to go there at all. He doesn't want me to accuse him of not fulfilling his word that he gave me when I was a child. He wants me to wait on him. Well, waiting is hard. Remember Moses went up on that mountain. And on that mountainside, he waited for a week for God to come and talk to him. God called him up on the mountain. But when he arrived at the place he was supposed to meet God, God did not come and talk with him. He didn't have a tent. He didn't have a 
accommodation for himself. He was to meet God on the mountain. He went up on the mountain and God didn't meet him for a week. Who am I to be impatient with the God of heaven? Even for the righteous, he humbles himself to be even willing to speak with us. Our place is in the dust and crying out to him or standing by faith on his word. So I know what God wants from me. Do you know what God wants from you? God wants me to wait upon him, not to grow impatient, not to be stubborn or hard. He wants me to wait on him. If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. No, he told you to cross. He opened the the flood stage river. They walked across on dry ground. And he's saying, now, this is what I want you to do. And they didn't do it. Now, Joshua doesn't know that. But please, when things are not going the way we expected them to go, it requires great patience and dust and ashes before a holy God. Now, I confess to you today, many godly men and women spoke about what was going to happen in America. And Dana Coverstone was one of those, and he did not say who was going to be president. He just said what was going to happen. Now, everything prophetically is subject to God. It's not subject to you or me. So if it doesn't work quite the way I expected it to, it means I need to go into the prayer closet and cry out to God and stand by faith and look to him and wait upon him. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel's been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this. And they'll surround us and and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Now, the Lord is not pleased. And this is about as close as God gets to shouting at somebody. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? He's reprimanded Joshua. Israel has sinned, and they have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So Joshua blames God and whines, and God says, Stand up on your feet. What are you doing down on your face? This is why this has happened. Now, this is an indulgible lesson that we need to learn. That there is a direct correlation between sin and failure. 
There's a direct correlation between God's judgment coming upon us, destruction coming upon us, and sin. When we walk in opposition to the Lord, we can expect to see a failure. Now, I've had many opportunities to see this in my own life and in the life of the church. But this time, I'm seeing it in technicolor. So a man says, why won't God give me a job? Why won't God give me a wife? Why won't God give me this and this and this? He's giving it to everybody else. Why not to me? Well, that's a very real indicator that that man or that woman needs to turn to the Almighty God and see if there is some sin in his life that is blocking God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish for him. I've had to do that in my life, and the Lord has shown me many things that he once changed, and I have changed those. And finally, the Lord spoke to me one morning about 3 a.m. I was up, and the Lord said to me, wait upon the Lord. That was two years ago, a little more than two years ago. Wait upon the Lord. The Lord will carry you through. Rest in me, Ray. Okay. How long should I wait on the Lord? Is there a limit on how long you wait on God? And then you turn and become accusatory toward God? No. I'm not the judge. I'm not the one who is... I'm not the one who's in charge. My life is subject to the will of Almighty God. I have said, I belong to you, Jesus. I will obey every word from your mouth. I will search the scriptures. I will walk in holiness before you. Please instruct me in your way. So right now, the Lord wants me to wait. Is that okay? Of course that's okay. He wants me to wait because he's in charge. He knows what his agenda is. I'm his servant. He's not my servant. I belong to him. So, the Lord tells him he must destroy whatever has been stolen and whoever is caught with the devoted things should be destroyed by fire along with everything that belongs to him. That he has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a very disgraceful thing in Israel. So early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward tribe by tribe, and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward, and finally Joshua had Achan standing before him. And he says, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise, which means confess to the Lord what you've done. Now, Achan had an opportunity to confess when Ai was destroyed, or before Ai destroyed the 36 men. He had the opportunity to repent. He did not. 
He had the opportunity to repent before he was taken. But now he's found. He has no opportunity to repent. But he is told you must confess what you have done. Tell me what you have done and do not hide it from me. And Achan says, yes, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver, that's about five pounds of silver, and a wedge of gold, I coveted them and I took them and they are hidden in the ground inside of my tent with the silver underneath. In other words, his whole family is now involved. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the man's tent. They found exactly what they were looking for. They spread it out before the Lord. And Joshua, together with the Israelites, took Achan, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, everything they took to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you brought this this trouble on us? Now the Lord will bring trouble on you today. And then they stoned the man to death. They stoned the man to death. It's called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. Then they sent men to Ai, and they destroyed Ai. They killed everyone. They destroyed the animals. No one escaped. And no children of Israel died. This story is so painful. But it shows exactly what God thinks about sin. And without a Savior, every one of us who has sinned against God deserves to die. We serve a God who is holy, who is righteous, and we were born in sin. We were born in the likeness of Adam and Eve. We were born condemned to die not to be stoned, but to be burned with fire. Now, in the book of Hosea, Israel has been in full rebellion against the Lord God of heaven. Now, Hosea is a a contemporary of Isaac, of Isaiah and Uzziah and Ahaz. And he dies just as Hezekiah is born. So it's a time of, of turning against the Lord. Chapter 2, she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. That is, Israel said, I'm going to go after my lovers. They're the one giving me everything. They're paying my way. But the Lord said, I will block her path. I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her loves, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. And then she will say, I'll go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Now, please hear what I'm saying to you. 
a man said to me, I'd be better off just forgetting about this whole Christian walk. I'd be better off if I just go after God, my gods. He was raised as a Hindu. I'd be better to go back to my old gods and just work out for myself what I want. I said, I'm sorry. You can't do that. What do you mean I can't do that? Well, you belong to God now. You made a vow that you would serve and worship the living God alone, Jesus Christ. You can try to go back, but if you do, God's going to block your way. Well, that's not fair. Well, that's how God works. You said you would belong to him. You made a, a, a marriage covenant with him. You were baptized. God's not going to just let you walk away from him. He's going to block your way. Then in verse 14, this is the most precious thing to me. This is God speaking. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. One of God's ways is that when we rebel against him, he lets destruction come. He lets our money be taken. He lets our business collapse. He he blocks us in. And then he begins to speak tenderly to us. And as we listen, as we allow him to court us, God begins to give us back what we've lost. Now, this may be a whole lifetime. But then he says, There I will give her back her vineyards, and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bales from her lips, and no longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move on the ground. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge that I am the Lord. Do you understand? In the valley of Achor, they stoned to death and burned everything that this wicked man had stolen and everything his family had. They treated him as God told them. And Achan was judged and there was no mercy. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve mercy. We deserve judgment. The God of heaven has humbled himself and looked upon us with pity. God is looking upon you now to see if you will stop all accusations and all judgments against God. If you will begin now to search your heart, to hear what he wants from you, 
And then you'll begin to walk in that and wait upon him. Now, we're almost out of time, but there is one more passage of Scripture I want to take you to very quickly. It's found in the book of Philippians. In chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about attitude. When things don't go our way, when our plans fail, when we lose, when our hope is set in some prophetic word, and it doesn't take place as we thought it would, we have an attitude problem. My dad, when I was a little guy, I dreaded to hear from him, Raymond, you have a bad attitude. Now change your attitude, or I'll change it for you. Well, I knew what that meant. That meant I either changed my attitude or I got a spanking. It's amazing how that would change my attitude. It would humble my heart. We change our attitude of entitlement by going to the dust and the ashes. You see, the Valley of Achor has become and will become for America a door of hope as the Lord brings the revival that he's promised In Matthew 24, the promise is there will be a revival at the end of time. This gospel will be proclaimed. It's not the gospel commission of Matthew. It is during the time of tribulation and trial. And there God is going to answer. And he's going to create a door of hope. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. I want you to hear this. Hear it not just intellectually. Hear it, please, in your spirit. God is saying, let your attitude be the same as Jesus' attitude. His attitude was, I will humble myself. The scriptures tell us he cried aloud, loud prayers and cries, and it said he was heard because of reverent submission. His cries were heard because of reverent submission. His attitude was that of being nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This passage in the second chapter of Philippians is called the cascade of God's love. It's where he he leaves heaven, And he becomes a man. But he doesn't just become a man. He becomes a servant man. He didn't come as a king. He came as a servant of a a humble man out of Nazareth. And then he humbled himself even more and entered into death. And even worse than that, it was not an honorable death. He died on the cross like a common criminal, crucified. Now, the Apostle Paul is saying, 
Your attitude should be the same as the attitude Jesus had that that he exhibited as he came to this earth. If you want to enter the door of hope, if you want to enter revival, and there will be a great revival in America, but you will be left out of that revival, Mr. Preacher, Bible teacher, member of a congregation, elder, leader of praise and worship, you will be shut out of that revival if you do not humble your heart before Almighty God and have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. The door of hope from the Valley of Achor is open through dust and ashes through choosing to be nothing, not exerting my strength and my power to prove to anybody that I'm somebody. But it means humbling my heart. It means sitting in dust and ashes. Now, Joshua and the elders of Israel sat down in the dust. They sprinkled the dust on their head. They admitted that they were nothing. And so when God rebuked them for his his accusations against God, all it caused Joshua to do was humble his heart even more. And he changed his attitude. There was a whole change in his attitude. You see, when we choose to humble our hearts before Almighty God, our attitude is changed. And I know of of many Christians, so-called, and yes, I'll say they're Christians. They choose to be Jesus' followers but they are so intellectually full of themselves that they will not humble their hearts. So they're like sheep without a shepherd. It takes humility to humble your heart to a shepherd. And to be a shepherd in the name of Jesus means to utterly humble your heart. The Gentiles lorded over one another, and they claimed to be something. They claimed to be somebody. Jesus said, not so with you. Let him who is least among you be the greatest. Would you deliberately find some way today to humble your heart before a brother or a sister, a mother or a father? Would you find some very specific way that you could humble yourself before your boss? Oh, I don't dare do that. They'll they'll think I'm nobody. But they've got it right. You are nobody. Any sense that you have that you're somebody is pretense. It's make-believe. We all die. Even the most beautiful, stunning, handsome man or woman will one day molder in the grave. And all of the beauty will be as the grass of the field and disappear. All of our great intellect will be dissipated and be gone. Who are we to think? that we should be proud before Almighty God or before our family? Who are we to pass judgments on one another, to pass judgments on, on the precious, humble followers of Jesus Christ? 
Oh, brother, you're wrong. You don't understand. You always. No. There's no profit in that. There's no. There's no profit in that. Would you find today some deliberate way to humble your heart before God? To humble your heart before your family, your friends. Find some words or actions that will tell them, I've humbled my heart before you. And see what happens. God only blesses those who are willing to sit in dust and ashes. God only lifts up the man or woman who is willing to humble their heart before Almighty God. Please, I'm nobody. I'm not important. Some people say, oh, oh, you're Pastor Ray. You're on the radio. That doesn't make me somebody. That makes me nobody. Do you understand? I only only come and speak this word to you out of time spent before the Lord God of heaven, and he gives me the word I'm to speak to you. I cried out last night. I cried out again this morning. I humbled my heart before God and said, I'll say whatever you tell me to say. Let's humble our hearts before God and before our brothers and sisters. Let's stop the judgments and the accusations. Let's extend love and mercy and kindness. Well, we're out of time for today. My brother, my sister, I love you. And I'm, I'm glad you're with me. I want to thank each one who has so kindly donated to this ministry. This is for the work of the gospel. It does not go to me. I don't take any out of it for myself. It is for the work of the gospel. Thank you. And I ask if you're willing to continue helping Would you go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com? Would you give online? Or would you write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346? Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'd love to meet you. I pray that soon I'll be able to do that. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in Jesus. Remember, find some way to humble your heart before God and your brother today. I'll talk to you soon. With great joy to you.